Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tom. Look up Exodus 20, verses 4, 5, and 6 for us, if you would, and we'll get to it in just a moment. Everybody else turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. God is turning his attention back to Jerusalem and back to the southern kingdom, starting at chapter 8. And God is going to explain his jealousy over Israel. Now, this is completely logical if you think about it. We, being human beings, when we see the word jealous, we think of green jealousy and some of the uglier characteristics of human beings. But God is jealous with a holy and righteous jealousy. And, well, he ought to be, because when you're talking about Israel, God has done, let's see, everything for them from beginning to end. He chose them in their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob took them into Egypt, but while they were in Egypt, created a nation of more than a million people out of them, and then delivered them out of their slavery, brought them through the Red Sea, gave them his covenant, gave them his law. For the next 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. For the next 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out. They had food every day that came down from heaven, and then once they came into the land, it was indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he drove out their enemies and he drove out the wild animals. He had provided everything for them if they would just worship him exclusively and singularly. And that is exactly what Tom is about to read for us. This is the second commandment. But in this recitation of this commandment, God is going to refer to himself as a jealous God, because he wants people to know that this is his character, that once he has chosen a people, brought them to himself, and done everything necessary for their good, then he expects them to worship him. Read it, Tom. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeliness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there God identifies himself by the characteristic, I am a jealous God. That's what I'm like. I'm not even going to hide this from you. I'm going to tell you up front that I'm a God who expects my worship. I deserve my worship. I expect my worship. So Israel then decides, having all these benefits from God, having all this goodness from God, having this land, having a kingdom where a God-ordained, God-chosen king, David, rules over them becoming a great kingdom under Solomon so that all the kings in the area flow to come see the the rulership and the wisdom and the wealth of Solomon. God has given them everything they could imagine. And what do they do? 
they worship idols, wood, stone, altars of their own making. In other words, they're worshiping nothing. It's a nothing. It can't speak. It can't talk. It can't do righteousness. It can't sin. It can't help you. It can't provide for you. It can't heal you. And if it has to go anywhere, you have to carry it. It's a nothing. And so these people have decided that rather than worship the God who gave them everything, they'll worship nothing and act like it's a something. Okay, that's absurd. So I decided to try to find an absurd example just so that we can sense what God is feeling at this moment. Well, thank goodness the Internet exists because it is rife with... It's the example. Well, <laughs> the Internet may be the example, but back in May of this year, and I remember reading this back in May and just thinking how silly it was. In May in San Diego, a woman in San Diego married a train station. Okay, wait, it gets worse. I know, I see your faces. Okay, she married a train station, she claims, because she said that she fell in love with the train station when she realized that she didn't like to go home at the end of every day. She wanted to stay with the train station. So she realized she was in love with the train station. She married the train station. You can check this on Google. Just put in woman marries train station. You're going to find this story. But now it gets more bizarre. She speaks of the train station in the feminine gender. <laughs> She's gay and she sees the train station is gay. And so she refers to the train station as her life partner. Yeah, okay. Now, the fact that you all laughed at that, and I'm sure every one of you think, well, that's crazy. That's silly. Don't you know that's a train station? It is nothing. It can't speak. It can't move. It can't help you. It can't do anything for you. It's bricks and mortar. It can't help you at all. It's a train station. And you've married the train station. You get no benefit from that, but you've married the train station. Okay. Well, to all of us, that seems absolutely absurd. And that's just our little silly, measly, mortal minds saying, but that's an absurdity. Why would you do that? And, of course, the story made it all around the Internet because it was absurd. So that we could all kind of laugh at the absurdity of it. Okay, now look at things from God's perspective. He sees it as equally absurd, or probably more absurd, that he would do everything for Israel, provide everything for Israel, bring them into covenant with himself, introduce them to himself, say, I will be your God, you will be my people, you're going to be a peculiar, distinct people on the planet, you're my covenant people, and they decide to worship stones and wood and things of their own making and that is in the truest sense absurd can you see why God who has defined himself as a jealous God would then look at their worship and say what are you doing this is crazy well so that's what he's going to get into here in Ezekiel chapter 8 the spirit of God is going to pick Ezekiel up by a lock of his hair and suspend him between heaven and earth and start showing him the abominations that are taking place 
in the temple in Jerusalem. And then, let me add, some of those abominations are still alive and well today. And we're going to look a little bit at them because we like to uh, think that when we read about idolatry, that's something that ancient people did way back then. That, those were the Israelites. They did that kind of stuff, worshiping idols and stuff. But it's every bit as prominent in modern religion and some of these particular religious practices that God said don't do are still being done. They just have new names. They have names like Easter, which makes everybody happy. Well, it's Easter. And there's bunnies. Bunnies. There's bunnies. And there's chocolate eggs. And there's little baskets with fake grass in them. And that's a fertility feast that God said, that's a feast to Tammuz. Don't be doing that. Sometimes it falls under the name of Christ Mass. And then everybody gets, oh, I love Christmas. Oh, and put up trees and give gifts and everything else. These are just new names, new polish to old heresies. And so I've taken a certain amount of heat over the fact that I've kind of been public about saying, I don't participate in those holidays because I know what God has said. God doesn't change. And God has said, don't do that Tammuz and Baal and Ashtart kind of religion. Don't do that because I'm a jealous God. And so I think, well, if God's a jealous God and he doesn't change and he has already said these things are an abomination, that even if you clean them up, that even if you bring them into our modern society and make them look all nice and you can walk into any store in America and see Christmas decorations, so it must be okay, I say, well, better to be safe than sorry. So we're going to see all that here in chapter 8, maybe a bit of chapter 9 tonight. Let's start at chapter 8, verse 1. And it came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month. Go back to Ezekiel 1 for just a second. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile. So that seems to be what he's dating by the exile of King Jehoiakim into Babylon, that seems to be the reference for chapter 8, verse 1, that it came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell on me there. And then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man from his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. And he stretched out the form of a hand, and he caught me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem." to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the idol of jealousy which provokes jealousy was located. Okay, now he doesn't identify specifically what this idol is, but we know a little bit of the history. Now I'm going to read just a little bit out of the Fawcett Brown Jameson commentary says this about that 
statue that brings about God's jealousy. That it is probably Ashtart or Asherah, as the Hebrew for grove ought to be translated. It was set up by Manasseh as a rival to Jehovah in God's temple and arresting all of the attention of all the worshipers as they entered. So as they were entering the temple of God, they would have immediately seen a grove to Ashtar. Now you need to know a little bit about this Ashtar, Asherah. She is also known as the queen of heaven in Phoenician literature. That name is still with us. It's just simply applied to an imaginary version of Mary within the Catholic Church. She is now the queen of heaven, but that name goes all the way back to Asherah, Ashtart. And she is also known in some circles as being Venus within the Syrian empire. She's known as Venus. So worshipers of God, as they're entering God's temple, are seeing an idol and seeing a, a grove and a set of plants that are set up at the north gate of the temple to arrest their attention away from the God of Israel and toward this Phoenician God. Now, another name that she goes by is Ishtar. That name has just come to us down through the ages as Easter. Easter. And what do we do at Easter? Get up early and run out and worship the sun as it rises in the east. In a minute, God's going to say, look at these worshipers that are all worshiping toward the east. So God says, And he stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head. And the spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. So God saw the glory at the very beginning. We read it, chapter 1 and 2. He saw the representation of the glory of God, and the glory of God is still in the temple at this point, but Ezekiel is going to see the glory of God depart the temple. That's where we get the word, by the way, for you homeschool students. Have you ever heard the word Ichabod? Like Ichabod Crane, the headless horseman? Okay, the word Ichabod means the glory departed. The glory is gone. And so Ezekiel is specifically saying the glory of God was in the temple so that you know in a minute when he describes the leaving of the glory that the glory of God has left the temple because even though it was dedicated to his worship, it is now the place of worship of the queen of heaven. Behold, the glory of God was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy right there at the entrance. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, that I should be far from my sanctuary? But yet you will see still greater abominations. 
Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Some of the commentaries say that that might be a window, some kind of portal. It just gives him the opportunity to look into the room and see what's going on in the inner chambers. Verse 8, he said to me, son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, I created an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved in the wall all around. In the hidden chambers inside the temple, they were carving images of creeping things and animals so that they could bow down and worship the creation rather than the creator. The very thing that Paul would later say in the, Rome, in the book of Romans was the very thing that God was upset about, that they see the creation, that they see the stars of the heavens, they see the sun and the moon, they see the universe, they see what God has done and that his handiwork is declared in the whole of the creation and yet people did not worship the creator, they end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And here they are in the very temple of God worshiping creatures. Can you see why God would be a little jealous? Yes. Can you see why God would say, that's crazy? That's absurd. I've told you not to do that. I've told you my commandments. I've told you I'm a jealous God. I've told you everything you need to know, and I've provided you with everything you need to worship me appropriately and aright. And what do you do? You carve every form of creeping thing and beast and unclean, detestable things, things that God has already identified in the law as being detestable to him, those are things they're worshiping. You can see why God would be jealous. With all the idols of the house of Israel were carved in the walls all around. And standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jaazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. That means they had priests among them worshiping every man with his censer in his hand. So they're burning incense, incense that God expects to be used for his worship. They're burning incense to the idols, to the creatures that they have bowed down and worshiped. And the fragrance of the cloud of incense was rising. Then he said to me, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, yet you will see still greater abominations than they are committing. Okay, so does it matter that they did these things in the dark? They thought it did. They thought, well, God doesn't see. It's dark. And they thought, well, God has abandoned Jerusalem. He's abandoned his temple. He's driven us into Babylon. Therefore, God just doesn't care for us anymore. So he doesn't care what we do. This is an important lesson. Because God does care what his people are doing 
all the time, in every situation, even in the dark, and he knows, and he's aware, and he's watching. And even if it seems that he has abandoned you, even if it seems that he's kind of got a hands-off policy with you, the fact of the matter is God is there, he is righteous, he is watching, and here he's told Ezekiel, look at the things they've done in dark chambers, walled away from everybody, their secret places of worship where they have their idols and their images that they bow down and burn incense to. God knows all about it and is able to take Ezekiel straight to it and say, see, it's right there. I knew it was there. So he said to me, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images, for they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. And then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Do you get the impression that God is saying, don't do that? Right? Don't do that. Yeah. Are people still doing that? Yes. Yeah. You know when they do it? Building up to the Feast of Ishtar for 40 days. They just call it Lent now. But the roots of Lent, which no church, Catholic or otherwise, can tell you where Lent comes from. What they say is it comes from Jesus being tempted by the devil for 40 days. What's that got to do with giving up chocolate for 40 days? Of course, all my Catholic friends, whenever Lent came around, would always give up something they didn't care for. <laughs> I've given up turnips, you know, I'm suffering for Jesus. I'm, I'm no longer going to have asparagus. I've given it up for Lent. Yeah, the whole idea of Lent is the 40 days of weeping over the death of Tammuz. That's the whole point. Tammuz is from a Hebrew root word meaning to melt down. Instead of weeping over their national sins, these women were weeping over an idol. In the Syrian language, he's referred to as Adonis. Do we still talk about Adonises? Sure, we still compare people. He's an Adonis, that guy. He's also the paramour of Venus, who we've already met, who we already know is Ashtart. The story, supposedly, of Tammuz is that he was killed by a wild boar, and then, according to the fable, he was permitted to spend half the year on Earth, and he was obliged to spend the other half in the lower world, in the nether regions. An annual feast was celebrated to him in June, hence called Tammuz in the Jewish calendar. That annual feast was held at a place called Byblos, when the Syrian women, in wild grief, tore off their hair and they yielded their persons to prostitution, consecrating the hire of their infamy to Venus. And then next, they followed days of rejoicing for the return of Tammuz to the earth. The former feast is called the Disappearance of Adonis, and the latter is called the Finding of Adonis. This Phoenician feast answered to a similar Egyptian one that was also in honor of Osiris. So the idea thus fabled 
was that of the waters of the river and the beauties of the spring being destroyed by the summer during the half year when the sun is in its upper heat. And then he would come back from the lower regions. He'd be on the earth again and the earth would be clothed in beauty. And then he would descend back into the lower parts. So the celebration of Tammuz is still going on in the world when everybody goes outside to worship Baal as the sun. Tammuz is also reputed to be the son of Baal. And then they, people run out and look to the east to see the rising of the sun and worship the sun at sunrise services. And so they're really keeping every one of these things that God is saying, don't do that. Just, just don't do that anymore because that's the worship of foreign idols and yet they continue in it. Listen to this. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. Sun worship. So sun worship still goes on today and is particularly prevalent. I know I'm being redundant here. It's particularly prevalent at the Feast of Ishtar and the 40 days of weeping leading up to it and the weeping for the death of Tammuz and the return and then the spring fertility feast and then everybody runs outside, looks to the east and bows themselves down to the sun and worships the sun. And he said to me, do you see this son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here? I feel, by the way, exactly that way. When I'm walking through Walmart and I see people going crazy to buy all the stuff that surrounds those holidays, I think, well, God is up there saying, don't you see what these people are doing? Don't you see these abominations just because they're called by a different name? doesn't mean that they're not still abominable. My point is this, because I know I'm kind of riding the Christmas Easter thing. But my point is, does God change? I think we saw definitively on Sunday morning, God doesn't change. So if he's taken the time right here to say, these practices, these actions are abominable to me, did he change just because society changed? In the roughly 7,000 years of recorded history that we have, did he change? If it's true that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, then all of recorded history is less than a week so far. I said 7,000. We have 6,000 years of recorded history. It's less than a week to God. And so the thought that God used to be like that, he used to think like that, those things used to be an abomination, but it's different now because we've grown up as a society and we've grown up as a as a people and we're smarter now than we used to be and so we don't do that idol worship thing are we? but are we <laughs> aren't we just kind of doing the same things and just giving them new names do you see this son of man is it too light a thing for the house of judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly. For behold, they are putting the twig in their nose. I love that phrase. Let's talk about that phrase for just a moment. It's a proverb, actually. It means that they turn up their nose in scorn, expressing their insolent sense of security before God. 
that they would just turn up their nose at God. And so God makes fun of them and says they've, they've put a twig up their nose. They've put a branch up their nose. They've ignored me, but they take part of my creation and set that in front of their face in the way that they have ignored me. Therefore, I indeed shall deal with them in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor shall I spare them. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I shall not listen to them. That sounds like a harsh, vindictive God. And yet, when you look at it in the big picture, you look at everything he's done for them, and you look at the way that they have treated him, and that absurdity of absurdities, they are now worshiping essentially nothing, idols, things of their own hands, crawling creatures, putting twigs in their nose and singing hymns to the sun. This is just absurd behavior. You can see why God would finally say, that's enough. That's enough. Now, even if you cry to me, I'm not going to hear it because you deserve the punishment that's coming. So chapter 9, verse 1 says, Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Does it sound here like God just called for executioners? That's not that really sweet little milk toast God that people seem so fond of that God of their imaginations who just doesn't care what they do or what they worship or how they behave. He doesn't care. God doesn't see. We're doing it in the dark. Who cares? God's calling for executioners now. Behold, verse 2, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and they stood beside the bronze altar. And then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been. You know what that's a reference to. The Ark of the Covenant had a caparath, a covering. And there were two cherub, two angels that were carved out of one piece on the top and their wings wrapped around them and met in the center. And when the high priest each year would come in and bring the covenant sacrifice, when he would come in and bring the ox blood, the lamb's blood, and he would sprinkle it around and he would have you know, the proper bread and he'd be wearing the proper clothes, he'd have the proper turban. If God accepted the sacrifice then the glory of God would come down and hover between the enclosed wings of the angels. But here, the glory of God that had been resting there departs. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was a writing case. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. I really like that verse. Because that shows that even though God is going to pour out wrath, justifiable wrath, even though he is going to let loose his anger before he does, 
He sends an angel to go through and mark all the people that really belong to God, that feel bad, that are repenting over Israel, and that are upset about the abominations that are going on in Israel, that sigh and groan over the abominations within the temple. Those people get marked first, and that's a picture that you see all the way through the Bible from beginning to end. Whenever God pours out his wrath, whether we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, where God sent an angel to take Lot and his family by the hand, take them out before the wrath. Whether we're talking about Noah and the flood, first there's Noah and eight folks in the boat, and then God closes the door, then God pours out the rain. Or whether you look in the New Testament at God taking out his church before he pours out his wrath, you see that image every time. And I'm glad that a God who knows all things and knows the people that are his and knows the people that are repentant and the ones that are rebellious, I'm really glad that he always consistently protects his own. So the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, the executioners, To the others, he said, in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary and then go out from there. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Remember the 70 that were inside, that were worshiping all the creatures, worshiping all the idols? They started there and just started slaying and executing in this vision that God is showing Ezekiel. Now, people might agree generally with the idea that old men and maybe some young men and older women, if they're doing it, then yes, God is right to judge them. But little children, come on. Jesus loves the little children. Come on, it's all about the children. I believe the children are the future. It's all about the children. You wouldn't wouldn't kill the children. You wouldn't send angelic executioners in to kill maidens, young girls, young men, little children and women. Come on. And yet God is so jealous for his own worship. He is so jealous to be the only object of worship in Jerusalem and among his people, and I would argue in his church, that he will not allow anyone, regardless of their age, he will not allow anyone to worship an idol or to cause him jealousy. And he's willing to take anybody out. And that, again, is not the sweet and kind, milk toast God that people seem to talk about. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, my God wouldn't act like that? (laughs) Yeah. My God thinks I'm pretty funny. And that's why he's my God, because he gets all my jokes. We're going to hear a lot of that this coming weekend. This weekend? When the hurricane hits. Oh, absolutely. Hits Florida. Absolutely. Did I ever tell you, I know I've told you this story before, but it kind of relates to what you've just said. Do you know John Riesinger? You know that name? John, years ago, I remember he was talking in a sermon about the fact that his son had been killed in Vietnam. And after he finished, a little woman came up to him and said, 
well, Pastor Riesinger, where was your God when your son was killed in Vietnam? And he said, same place he was when his son was killed on Calvary, sitting on his throne doing whatever seemed right to him. So that's going to be the answer this weekend. When the hurricane hits Florida, where is God? Sitting on his throne doing whatever seems right to him. And he's a jealous God, and he desires, and he, in fact, demands that he is the only object of worship. And again, the absurdity is people worshiping all these other things that can't help. When was the last time that anybody was actually assisted in some significant way by a palm branch? Nothing? Nobody got anything? No, palm branches don't help. When was the last time anybody was significantly helped by a St. Christopher medal? Okay, the Catholics are all tuning out right now. <laughs> when was the last time that, that a, an image of Mary on your dashboard made you a better driver? These things can't help you. They're nothing. They were created by men. They were manufactured and then sold to people as religious objects. And yet people pray to these things. I, again, growing up a McClarty, Irish Catholic, I had cousins that used to pray to the saints to help them if they lost something. And then when they'd find it, they would thank the saints for helping them find it. And even as a kid, I thought, they didn't help you. You just happened to come across it because you looked for it. That's how you find stuff. And then they always go, it was in the last place I looked. I thought, well, yeah. Why would you keep looking when you found it? It's in the last place you looked. Anyway, the saints don't help. The medals don't help. The statues don't help. Do you know that there is a statue in St. Peter's Basilica that is reputed to be St. Peter? His feet, the toes of his feet, have been kissed away by the number of people who have kissed his feet. And, and people are kissing that idol daily. And yet they think they're worshiping God. They've come to the Vatican. For heaven's sakes, they're worshiping God. Now they've got to get to their statue of Mary and light some candles. Yeah, this is just all idol worship. And God says over and over and over again, this is an abomination to me. To the others, to the executioners, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women. But do not touch any man who has the mark. And you will start at my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Get out. Thus they went out and they struck down the people in the city. Then it came about, as they were striking, and I alone was left, that I fell on my face and I cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, art thou destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out thy wrath on Jerusalem? And he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. And the land is filled with blood. 
and the city is full of perversion. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor shall I spare, but I shall bring their conduct upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen at, at whose loins was the writing case, reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. Chapter 10, And then I looked, and behold, in the expanse, there was over the heads of the cherubim something like a sapphire stone in appearance resembling the throne that I had seen above them. And at this point, you're going to see the glory of God depart the temple. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Heavy, huh? Yeah. I wish I could come here and teach Ezekiel as a lighthearted romp through, hey, it's the Old Testament. Yeah, it's, it's happy, friendly God. Look, dance around. Whee. But God, if you come away with anything tonight, come away with the realization that God is a jealous God. That God demands his worship. He demands singularity. He demands that he alone is the only God that you worship. And, and even though it's easy to think that that whole abomination thing and that whole idol worshiping thing, it's really easy to think that that's from times gone by, but it's just not. If you look around at the world we live in, you know, there are examples that I've used for so many years that I feel redundant saying it, but even the days of the week that we refer to now are named after things that people worship. There's Moon Day, Tammuz Day, which is where Tuesday comes from, Woden's Day, which is why Wednesday is spelled so weird, and Thor's Day, and Freya's Day, and Saturn's Day, and then a day to the sun. Yay, sun worship again. And we're just so indoctrinated with it, we don't even think about it anymore. That's why in the Old Testament, the days are numbered, not named. And so many of the months have names of ancient and foreign gods. June comes from Juno. I like July and August, which I just find hysterical, because July and August were actually inserted months by Roman emperors, Julius and Augustus. Which knocked off September, October, November. Yeah, which set all of those back two months. Yeah, so they don't yeah. up with, with In every Latin-based language, Septa is seven. It's the ninth month. Octa? Eight, that's the tenth month. That makes sense. Nueve, that's nine. November, that's the eleventh. Deca, ten, we all know Deca, right? Yeah, it's the twelfth, yeah. Because two emperors decided they needed months named after them. But June is named after Juno, and Janus, January, and March is named after Mars. And we're just so used to it. We just say it without thinking. But from God's perspective, these things still mean things. These words still matter. These, these concepts still exist. I'm saying it's better to be safe. So let me say this in closing, just to give you all a, a little peace of mind on the way out of here. Uh, you know that my stand has been from the beginning that I'm not the great Scrooge. I'm not the great humbug. Christmas is coming up soon. If I come to your house and you've decorated, I, I don't care. Let everybody be convinced in their own mind. If you like the Christmas holiday and want to have a bit of celebration, just make sure that you're actually worshiping Jesus in the middle of it. Don't put Santa Claus in your manger scene. That will upset me. But, 
But he's on his knees bowing to Jesus. So that makes it better. Every knee shall bow. So, yeah. But all I'm saying, all I'm driving at in the midst of commenting on those two chapters is know what your Bible says and know what makes God jealous. And then don't do that because smart people would not be trying to get God angry at them. We should be a separate, different people. Our worship should be singular, and we should be separate from the world and its festivals. But that's, that just seems logical to me. But still, there should be a whole bunch of kids coming to my house on Reformation Day. <laughs> Dressed up like Martin Luther and demanding Absolutely. candy. Yeah. yeah. I'm halfway there. All I got to get is a little piece of carpet and put it right around here. And, No idea what's being said. This is the 500th anniversary That's right. this yeah. year. So Happy Reformation Day seems appropriate. Yeah, we should be something. Yeah. And then every kid that comes to your door, give them a copy of the 95 Theses. In German. In German, yeah. Instead of 95 Reeses. Instead of what? Instead of 95 Reeses. Instead of 95 Reeses? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give them 95 theses. I'm totally with you. Oh, dear. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.